Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. I have a friend with this great shirt. She wore it one day, and then I ended up buying it for myself. It's, uh, it has a picture of a T-Rex on the front, and across the top it says, It's time to eat, kids! But there's no punctuation. So typically you would read it as, It's time to eat, comma, kids. But without punctuation, it simply says, It's time to eat, kids, with the T-Rex, you know going to eat someone or something. And then at the bottom, it simply says, punctuation matters. I just thought it was so funny. As a theology and English major, I uh, especially appreciated it. Um, But I thought it was so funny. And this is a very tenuously related intro to our discussion for today, which is what we say and do matter. So um, going to the sacraments, we just started talking about the sacraments a couple episodes ago in part two of the catechism, and we'll talk today about how going to the sacraments versus not going to the sacraments matters. It actually changes our life, our lives for the better when we go, and when we don't go, we miss out. Uh, we miss out on grace and that more and more of that, that blessed life that God has for us. Does that mean that if we go to the sacraments, our lives will be pain-free, suffering-free, and uh, blissful from here until eternity? No, we will still suffer, experience pain, and uh, by the grace of God, be be purified and, and strengthened as a result of that. Um, but going to the sacraments helps us to navigate that suffering and navigate the the pains of life and enjoy more deeply the joys of life, um, and as a result, live more fulfilledly and more profoundly this beautiful life that God offers to each and every one of us. So on the second half of today's episode, we'll read paragraphs 1122 through 1152, and uh, I'd like to focus on a couple paragraphs in the, the 1120s today. So we'll start with paragraph 1127. Paragraph 1127 says about a line in, it says, the sacraments, they are efficacious, and that word efficacious is italicized. They are efficacious because in them Christ himself is at work. It is he who baptizes, he who acts in his sacraments in order to communicate the grace that each sacrament signifies. And then we skip a couple lines down and continue. As fire transforms into itself everything it touches, so the Holy Spirit transforms into the divine life whatever is subject to its power, subjected to its power. So the sacraments are efficacious. Um, That word, not only because it's italicized, but because of what it signifies, um, jumps out at the reader um, because it's it's a great reminder, a great uh, explanation of what the sacraments are actually doing. So oftentimes when we think of prayer, we think of going to mass, we think of going to confession. um, We often think of, I think, kind of going through, or some people I should say, think of going through the rituals, going through the motions, um, participating in this longstanding tradition that has been laid out for us, um, which is true. We're participating in something that has been going on for for millennia. Um, But I think it's often easy to forget that every time we go to the sacraments, it's fresh, it's new, and it's efficacious. Something is happening. Um, it's not simply 
you know, like a monument to someone or something that's gone before, but it's this living, breathing, life-changing moment, which again is efficacious. It effects something in our lives. It changes something. It does something. So when someone is baptized and we see the water being poured over his or her head, um, that, that physical sign of water is pointing to a spiritual reality. So one of the, there's many definitions for the sacraments, but one of my favorites is simply visible signs of God's invisible grace. So the seven sacraments are visible signs. We see something visibly, um, whether it's the water at baptism, the chrism at confirmation, um, the hands of the priest over the penitent in confession and the words of absolution. Um, what are we missing here? Um, so the anointing of the sick, again, there's chrism. Um, there are the, these physical, tangible, visible realities pointing to and simultaneously helping to affect an invisible change, that invisible grace, healing, transformation, forgiveness, something that's coming to us through these sacraments. So while we observe this physical, visible water being poured often over a child's head, sometimes an adult's head, um, it's signifying and affecting an invisible change. So grace is coming to that child, that person. Um, sorry, I left my phone on there, a little ding. Um, or with uh, the imposition of the hands at confession where the priest holds up his hands and then says with his words, I absolve you in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The, those hands are communicating this invisible, intangible reality of God's grace, Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity, um, forgiving us, healing us, washing us clean of our sins. The Eucharist, okay, there, there's a very physical thing going on there. We as human beings are body and soul. We are physical and um, spiritual realities. And so when we eat Christ's body, we drink his blood under the physical signs of um, bread and wine, which have actually been transformed into his body and blood. Uh, something physical and spiritual is going on for us. So we are we are literally being nourished as we consume, and we are spiritually being nourished as we consume, um, which is just wild, but also so beautiful and simple that Christ comes to us. We're, we're just about, uh, actually, when you listen to this, we will have just celebrated Christmas, if you're listening in real time. Um, we celebrate the, the Feast of the Incarnation. So if you break that word down in carne uh, for, for any Spanish speakers or Spanish, uh, um, those who are listening who speak Spanish, uh, carne we know means meat. And so it's the in meatment of the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, God himself takes on human meat or flesh and steps into our timeline um, to interact with, with we who are not only souls, spiritual realities, but also bodily um, physical realities. And so in giving us the seven sacraments, he recognizes that physical bodiliness of our humanity and our spiritual or intangibleness of our human reality. And he addresses both, which is awesome. And so when we receive the sacraments, again, it's not just going through the motions or, um, you know, paying homage to something or someone who's gone before us, but it's literally affecting us right now in real time and changing 
us moving forward. Um, the reception of the sacraments depends primarily on Christ. So we just read in paragraph 1127 that it is, because in them Christ himself is at work. It is he who baptizes, he who acts in his sacraments. So Christ himself is working in and through the minister of the sacrament. Um, in most of the sacraments, it's the priest. Some of the sacraments, it's the bishop, um, perhaps a deacon. And then in the sacrament of marriage, it is the man and the woman, the soon-to-be husband and wife who confer the sacrament on each other. Christ acts in and through them. Um so it's primarily Christ who's at work in these sacraments. But then as we've discussed, you know, in terms of other dimensions of our Catholic faith, um, it's also we, rational, free human beings, who must interact as well, who must um, participate in these sacraments so as to be open to and receive these graces. So uh, paragraph 1128, one paragraph later, says about halfway through, it follows that the sacrament is not wrought by the righteousness of either the celebrant or the recipient, but by the power of God. So the reception of grace or the efficacy of the sacrament depends, depends first and foremost first and foremost, on God himself. So it's God who's at work, um, who's affecting, again, this purification, this nourishment, this uh, transformation. But then paragraph 1128 um, ends with, nevertheless, the fruits of the sacraments also depend on the disposition of the one who receives them. So we have to literally show up to the sacraments and then... Um, as far as our dispositions go, we, we need to show up as well. So we can't just go through the motions um, if we want to receive the fullness of grace that's offered to us through that sacrament. When I used to teach um, the chapter on marriage to my students, we talked um, about the difference between divorce and annulment and what constitutes grounds for an annulment, which when we get to the sacrament of marriage, we'll, we'll address that. Um, but basically, there are things that could stand in the way of the sacrament of marriage being conferred on husband and wife, and therefore declaring that sacrament null and void, so making grounds for an annulment. And one of the things that sadly often happens is um, someone will show up, or maybe both parties will show up uh, drunk to a wedding, and therefore he and or she are not in full command of their senses and are not fully actively conferring the sacrament on the other. And so um, in looking back on what looked like a sacrament taking place, um, the church with the man and the woman can determine mm, it actually didn't take place because you were not in full command of your faculties. And so um, it, it does matter, you know, if we, if we show up drunk to our wedding or if we show up, you know, um, uh, just completely distracted during the Eucharist or the sacrament of confession. On a side note, my students would say, some of my students would say, like, oh, okay, if I'm worried about getting married, then um, I'll just drink before my wedding. And then, like, if it doesn't work out, then that'll be grounds for an annulment. And I would say, like, okay, if that's your mentality going in, number one, don't get married. <laughs> don't get married yet. And number two, um, let's talk about this a little bit more because that's a, a wonky understanding of the sacrament of marriage. Um, so our disposition um, affects how we receive that grace. So again, primarily it depends on, on God, on Christ, who administers the sacrament, um, whether or not to continue that 
example of, of drunkenness, let's say a priest shows up drunk to administer, to say mass and administer the sacrament of the Eucharist. Um, we who receive the Eucharist are not affected by that. Okay, so Christ, e- even though that minister of the sacrament, the priest, the drunk priest in this case, is, um, you know, not in full command of his faculties and is not um, uh, administering the sacrament well, we don't, um, the grace does not get mixed up for us who receive the sacrament. So the sacrament is still celebrated. Christ is acting, that priest is acting in persona Christi. And so Christ is confecting the sacrament as long as he follows all the rubrics of the sacrament. And so we still receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ, or let's say that happens in confession or another sacrament. We are still forgiven of our sins. Um, Someone is still baptized. So because it's Christ who primarily acts in and through the sacrament, we still receive that grace. However, if we show up to the sacrament closed off in a state of mortal sin, um, you know, not fully present to that sacrament, then our reception of that sacrament might be, um, to use analogical language, uh, low or less. You know, we, we won't receive the fullness of what we could had we showed up in a state of grace. So having gone to confession, you know, to... Uh, be cleansed of our venial or mortal sin before going to, let's say, the sacrament of of the Eucharist. Um, If we prepare ourselves beforehand and then pray for the grace to put aside our distractions, um, if we literally put away our phones during Mass, then we, we show up physically and mentally, spiritually ready to receive the grace. So um, on the one hand, you know, God's got us. He confects. He makes happen the sacraments, thank God. Um, on the other hand, which is a little unnerving and terrifying, like who, by our own free choices, we can affect how much grace we do or don't receive. So please, God, give us the grace to show up for that grace and get the fullness of that grace that you intend for each and every one of us. I'd also like to um, read a line from paragraph 1135, so a little bit later on, which talks about the, the catechesis of the liturgy. It says, the catechesis of the liturgy entails, first of all, an understanding of the sacramental economy, dot, dot, dot. Re- really, it's that, that phrase, catechesis of the liturgy, which the catechism is basically saying here, we're now going to walk through what, what the liturgy means um, you know, we who wrote the catechism are going to catechize you, teach you about liturgy in general, and then go specifically into the liturgy of each of the seven sacraments. But that phrase, the catechesis of the liturgy, uh, struck me because I'm, I'm taking it a little out of context here to say that the, the liturgy itself catechizes. So when we go to each of these sacraments, um, not only are we being transformed, renewed, purified, cleansed, nourished, fed, we receive grace, but walking through, again, as human beings who are body and soul, walking through each of those sacraments, going to each of these liturgies, we are being catechized. We're learning more and more um, about what Christ is offering us to what he is calling us, and we um, are transformed by that. We learn from that. I you know, have, have four small children. We, we try to go, we go to Mass every Sunday, and then we try to go to 
daily mass a couple of times a week. And um, sometimes in the middle of mass, I'm like, why am I doing this? This is, I, I equate it to a marathon with, with small children who are, you know, trying to duck out of the pew, who are asking for this, telling me that, um, you know, trying to wave to a friend over there and, you know, trying to get father's attention over here. Um, I equate it to a marathon where I'm like, okay, we're running, we're running, we're going. Okay, just make it to the first reading. Okay, we made it to the first reading. Okay, now make it to the second reading. Okay, we made it to the second reading. Now make it to the the gospel and the homily. Okay, we're, okay, now just make it to the Our Father. Okay, now finish line is in sights. We're almost done. And it's like, it's um, a little physically and mentally exhausting to go to mass with small children. But... Um, you know, our, our oldest is six and a half. Our youngest is, is three months. Um, Sophia, Declan, and Peter already know so many of the words of the prayers of the Mass. Um, they, you know, will sit and stand and kneel sometimes. <laughs> sometimes they're like little wet rags draped over Dan and me or, you know, how much longer? Is this a short Mass or a long Mass? Um, I might have mentioned on a previous episode that I asked uh, Declan one time what his favorite part of the mass was and he said when mass is done it's like okay good talk and also uh, uh, Uncle Gregory and Aunt Tess his godparents please pray for your godson um, so sometimes I wonder like well should we just wait till they get a little older but I already see um, at six five and two and a half um, they know a lot of the words they know the rhythm of the mass. They know a lot of the motions, and they've been asking some some really profound questions. Like, um, okay, if if Jesus is God, how did he come to Earth? Good question. And if he was on Earth, how did he go back to heaven? And was he not in heaven when he was on Earth? It's like, oh my gosh, you're five years old. How are you thinking of these questions? God puts the truth in our hearts. He puts the desire to know that truth. And, um, you know, he offers us ways of coming to know that truth at any age, every age. And so, um, you know, I think we sometimes uh, don't give kids enough credit um, where they, in realizing or in recognizing that they, they pick up on everything. And so in walking through, in participating in the sacraments, they are being catechized. And, you know, as adults, we continue to be catechized where it, it kind of like seeps into our bones, our hearts, our minds, our lives, um, so that when questions arise or doubts arise, we, ha we have something to, um, you know, to turn to or point to or, um, you know, a way of delving more deeply into like, why do we believe this? Or where does that come from? Or, okay, it makes sense that we, you know, we kneel when that bread and wine is being transformed into the body and blood of, of Jesus Christ. God is present on the altar and, you know, we kneel, we bow, um, we curtsy before royalty. Guess who's watching the Harry and Meghan uh, documentary on Netflix? <laughs> we're, we're talk There's a lot of talk about curtsying and, and bowing right now. Um, and so the, the liturgy, um, these sacraments affect grace in our lives and change, transformation, and also teach us about the faith that uh, we profess to live, that we're living, um, which is, is really awesome and beautiful. I had a, a friend in high school who he was raised by a Jewish mother and um, a Catholic father, and so he jokingly referred to himself as, as cashew. Okay, he's Catholic and Jewish. He's cashew. Um, but I think because 
um, you know, his parents didn't want to like, quote unquote, force anything on him or make it confusing that, that they each believed different things. Um, it was kind of like a, a laissez-faire religious upbringing. And so now as adults, we're, we're still friends. Um, he doesn't really ascribe to anything or, or practice, um, a faith because as another friend said, um, you know, not a, not a whole lot was like put in the bank to then make withdrawals from. And so um, when we go as children or bring our children to the sacraments, to liturgies, um, we're, we're putting something in the bank so that they can make those withdrawals later, maybe sooner rather than later. Um, we're giving them something to, to draw from, to rely on. Um, so that God willing, they and we can continue to come back to these sacraments again and again and again and draw from, make, you know, withdrawals from he who is infinite and uh, God himself who just has grace upon grace upon grace to give us, um, to help us walk through this life and, and live in a beautiful, full, fulfilling way. So what we say and do matters. Um, what we say and do points to a spiritual reality beyond us. It signifies what's important to us and that which we participate in, whatever it is, um, has, you know, effects or, or ramifications for our lives. So, uh, I have a friend, Erin, who has three children and, um, she and her husband are, are very sporty, very outdoorsy. Um, and as a result, their, their children are as well. So we were hanging out one time, our two families, and before I knew it, Declan was suddenly on a bike and riding it for the first time without training wheels. And I was like, oh my gosh, you, Aaron just made that so like simple and attainable and, and easy for him that he picked it up like it was no big deal. Uh, another time I was chatting with her about how, again, Declan had recently expressed interest in ice skating. And um, she said, oh yeah, her son, uh, Milo, um, had also expressed interest in ice skating. So her husband, you know, took Milo to the rink. He took a couple lessons, learned to ice skate, and now he's playing ice hockey. I said, you guys are amazing. You, um, you know, your, your children are young, but they're very, um, you know, involved in sports and like fun outdoor activities. And even though they're small, they, uh, they do it adeptly already and, um, you know, seem to really enjoy it. She said, well, sports and, and outdoor activities are, are Casey and my thing, like we enjoy that. And so we've naturally imparted that to our children. And so I walked away thinking like, hmm, what's Dan and my thing? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so we love talking about Jesus and our Catholic faith, hanging out at Catholic events. <laughs> so going to, you know, mass and retreats and small faith groups. And so as a result, um, our kids are very immersed in Jesus already, <laughs> whether they like it or not. Our, our thing has become their thing. So I pray that it continues to be their thing. Oftentimes that will go one of two ways. It continues to be the children's thing or they reject it and it, it becomes very much not their thing. So please, Jesus, may it continue to be their thing. Um, but I say that as a way of, of uh, illustrating that what we say and do matters for ourselves and for others. So for Erin and her husband, um, you know, being active is very important. They too, by the way, love Jesus. Jesus is also their thing. Um, but being active and, um, you know, do, yeah, doing activities and, and sports and stuff is very important to them. And so they do that. And as a result, that is important to their children and their family. So what we say and do matters. 
what we say and do matter. Uh, what we participate in, what we show up for, has effects on our life, each of our lives, and the lives of those around us. I used to say to my students when we would go through the um, – I used to teach morality to juniors, and um, I would often say our words and actions reveal and define us. So what we say and do reveals a little bit of who we are, and it further defines who we are. So if I tell a lie, um, I reveal, sadly, that I'm a liar, and I actually make myself more of a liar because through my words and actions, I'm, I'm walking myself more and more into this reality of lying. If I tell the truth, I reveal that I am a truth teller, that I'm honest, I'm integrity filled, and I actually, each time I tell the truth, I make myself more and more truthful through my words and actions. I, um, I had friends in when I lived in Nicaragua, um, a husband and wife I was friendly with, and um, he was just um, just such a pure, had such a pure heart, was so honest and integrity filled. And I remember something came up one time. Um, I forget what exactly the scenario was, but, but basically, um, my friend, the wife was inclined to tell a little white lie to just, you know, spare the, the children's feelings. And, um, the husband said, um, no, we're not going to tell them that. And she said, why not? He said, because it's a lie. It's like, oh my gosh, this is true. And as a result, I just trusted him implicitly. You know, if he if he's not lying in the small matters, and I know he's not lying in the big matters. Um, and each time he tells the truth, he was making himself more truthful and trustworthy. So when we so in all things in life, what we do reveals and defines us, but but especially with the sacraments, when we when we go to these efficacious opportunities of receiving grace, of again being purified, forgiven, transformed, whatever the sacrament is offering, um, it, it it reveals a little bit of who we are. So we are are beings who draw close to Christ, and it further defines who we are. It makes us closer to Christ. It makes us more grace-filled and um, forgiven, purified, transformed. So first practically speaking, let's frequent the sacraments, these opportunities that are efficacious, that effect grace, transformation, healing, forgiveness, nourishment in our lives. And um, again, very practically speaking, if we go to Mass on Sundays, but maybe not during the week, let's this week pick one day to um, you know go a second time to receive the Eucharist. If you are a daily Mass attendant, um, or like me, you go two days a week, maybe pick one more day to go and be affected by the grace of the sacrament. If you go every day, maybe invite someone to go to this efficacious sacrament with you. And then over the next month, um, let's pick a day to go to confession and, again, literally be transformed by that moment. Um, be forgiven, be healed, be cleansed, even if we don't feel it. Don't walk out of the confessional feeling light as a feather. Recognize that the sacraments, by the grace of God, are efficacious and will transform our lives. Secondly, practically speaking, let's spend five minutes in quiet, prayerful reflection this week asking God, uh, of what is my life a sacrament? So Lord, what invisible reality does my visible life, to what invisible reality does my visible life point. So when, when people see me and my actions, when they hear me and my words, to what am I pointing? 
what am I affecting in the lives of others? So do they see me as patient and therefore want to be more patient? Or do they see me as impatient and, you know, are able to then justify their, their impatience? Um, to what invisible realities does my visible life point? What am I effecting or bringing about in the world? And then let's chat with God about it. So am I, am I happy with this? I want to keep going. Is there something I would like to change? So something to which I wish my life were pointing. Um, and, and again, you know, what, of what is my life a sacrament? So we'll end the first half of our episode there. Thanks for joining me. We'll take a little break and then we'll return on the second side to read our catechism selection of the day, which is paragraphs 1122 through 1152. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read paragraphs 1122 through 1152 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The Sacraments of Faith. Christ sent his apostles so that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The mission to baptize, and so the sacramental mission, is implied in the mission to evangelize, because the sacrament is prepared for by the word of God and by the faith, which is assent to this word. The people of God is formed into one in the first place by the word of the living God. The preaching of the word is required for the sacramental ministry itself, since the sacraments are sacraments of faith, drawing their origin and nourishment from the word. The purpose of the sacraments is to sanctify men, to build up the body of Christ, and finally to give worship to God. Because they are signs, they also instruct. They not only presuppose faith, but by words and objects, they also nourish, strengthen, and express it. That is why they are called sacraments of faith. The church's faith precedes the faith of the believer who is invited to adhere to it. When the church celebrates the sacraments, she confesses the faith received from the apostles. Whence the ancient saying, Lex orandi, lex credendi, or legem credendi, lex statuat supplicandi, according to Prosper of Aquitaine from the 5th century. The law of prayer is the law of faith. The church believes as she prays. Liturgy is a constitutive element of the holy and living tradition. For this reason, no sacramental rite may be modified or manipulated at the will of the minister or the community. Even the supreme author in the church, excuse me, even the supreme authority in the church may not change the liturgy arbitrarily, but only in the obedience of faith and with religious respect for the mystery of the liturgy. Likewise, since the sacraments express and develop the communion of faith in the church, the lex orandi is one of the essential criteria of the dialogue that seeks to restore the unity of Christians. The Sacraments of Salvation Celebrated worthily in faith, the sacraments confer the grace that they signify. They are efficacious because in them Christ himself is at work. It is he who baptizes, he who acts in his sacraments, in order to communicate the grace that each sacrament signifies. The Father always hears the prayer of his Son's Church, which in the epiclesis of each sacrament expresses her faith in the power of the Spirit. As fire transforms into itself everything it touches, so the Holy Spirit transforms into the divine life whatever is subjected to his power. 
This is the meaning of the church's affirmation, that the sacraments act ex opere operato, literally, by the very fact of the actions being performed. For example, by virtue of the saving work of Christ accomplished once for all. It follows that the sacrament is not wrought by the righteousness of either the celebrant or the recipient, but by the power of God. From the moment that a sacrament is celebrated in accordance with the intention of the church, the power of Christ and his spirit acts in and through it, independently of the personal holiness of the minister. Nevertheless, the fruits of the sacraments also depend on the disposition of the one who receives them. The church affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. Sacramental grace is the grace of the Holy Spirit, given by Christ and proper to each sacrament. The Spirit heals and transforms those who receive him by conforming them to the Son of God. The fruit of the sacramental life is that the spirit of adoption makes the faithful partakers in the divine nature by uniting them in a living union with the only Son, the Savior. The Sacraments of Eternal Life The Church celebrates the mystery of her Lord until he comes, when God will be everything to everyone. Since the apostolic age, the liturgy has been drawn towards its goal by the Spirit's groaning. In the Church, Maranatha. The liturgy thus shares in Jesus' desire, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In the sacraments of Christ, the church already receives the guarantee of her inheritance and even now shares an everlasting life, while awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, come Lord Jesus. St. Thomas sums up the various aspects of sacramental signs. Therefore, a sacrament is a sign that commemorates what precedes it, Christ's passion, demonstrates what is accomplished in us through Christ's passion, grace, and prefigures what that passion pledges to us, future glory. In brief, the sacraments are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the Church, by which divine life is dispensed to us. The visible rites by which the sacraments are celebrated signify and make present the graces proper to each sacrament. They bear fruit in those who receive them with the required dispositions. The Church celebrates the sacraments as a priestly community structured by the baptismal priesthood and the priesthood of ordained ministers. The Holy Spirit prepares the faithful for the sacraments by the Word of God and the faith which welcomes that Word in well-disposed hearts. Thus, the sacraments strengthen faith and express it. The fruit of sacramental life is both personal and ecclesial. For every one of the faithful on the one hand, this fruit is life for God in Christ Jesus. For the church on the other, it is an increase in charity and in her mission of witness. Chapter 2, The Sacramental Celebration of the Paschal Mystery The catechesis of the liturgy entails first of all an understanding of the sacramental economy. Chapter 1 In this light, the innovation of its celebration is revealed. This chapter will therefore treat of the celebration of the sacraments of the Church. It will consider that which, through the diversity of liturgical traditions, is common to the celebration of the seven sacraments. What is proper to each will be treated later. This fundamental catechesis on the sacramental celebrations responds to the first questions posed by the faithful regarding this subject. Who celebrates the liturgy? How is the liturgy celebrated? When is the liturgy celebrated? Where is the liturgy celebrated? Article 1. Celebrating the Church's Liturgy. Who celebrates? Liturgy is an action of the whole Christ, Christus totus. Those who even now celebrate it without signs are already in the heavenly liturgy, 
where celebration is Holy Communion and Feast, the celebrants of the Heavenly Liturgy. The Book of Revelation of St. John, read in the Church's Liturgy, first reveals to us, A throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, the Lord God. It then shows the Lamb, standing as though it had been slain. Christ crucified and risen, the one high priest of the true sanctuary, the same one who offers and is offered, who gives and is given. Finally, it presents the river of the water of life, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, one of the most beautiful symbols of the Holy Spirit. Recapitulated in Christ, these are the ones who take part in the service of the praise of God and the fulfillment of his plan. The heavenly powers, all creation, the four living beings, the servants of the old and new covenants, the 24 elders, the new people of God, the 144,000, especially the martyrs slain for the word of God, and the all-holy mother of God, the woman, the bride of the lamb. And finally, a great multitude, which no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues. It is in this eternal liturgy that the Spirit and the Church enable us to participate whenever we celebrate the mystery of of salvation in the sacraments. The Celebrants of the Sacramental Liturgy It is the whole community, the body of Christ united with its head, that celebrates. Liturgical services are not private functions, but are celebrations of the Church, which is the sacrament of unity, namely the holy people united and organized under the authority of the bishops. Therefore, liturgical services pertain to the whole body of the Church. They manifest it and have effects upon it. But they touch individual members of the Church in different ways, depending on their orders, their role in the liturgical services, and their actual participation in them. For this reason, rites which are meant to be celebrated in common, with the faithful present and actively participating, should as far as possible be celebrated in that way, rather than by an individual and quasi-privately. The celebrating assembly is the community of the baptized who, by regeneration and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, are consecrated to be a spiritual house and a holy priesthood, that through all the works of Christian men they may offer spiritual sacrifices. This common priesthood is that of Christ, the sole priest, in which all his members participate. Mother Church earnestly desires that all the faithful should be led to that full, conscious, and active participation in liturgical celebrations, which is demanded by the very nature of the liturgy, and to which the Christian people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a redeemed people, have a right and an obligation by reason of their baptism. But the members do not all have the same function. Certain members are called by God in and through the church to a special service of the community. These servants are chosen and consecrated by the sacrament of holy orders, by which the Holy Spirit enables them to act in the person of Christ the head for the service of all the members of the church. The ordained minister is, as it were, an icon of Christ the priest. Since it is in the Eucharist that the sacrament of the church is made fully visible, it is in his presiding at the Eucharist that the bishop's ministry is most evident as well as, in communion with him, the ministry of priests and deacons. For the purpose of assisting the work of the common priesthood of the faithful, other particular ministries also exist, not consecrated by the sacrament of holy orders. Their functions are determined by the bishops in accord with liturgical traditions and pastoral needs. Servers, readers, commentators, and members of the choir also exercise a genuine liturgical function. In the celebration of the sacraments, it is thus the whole assembly that is laeturgos, each according to his function, but in the unity of the Spirit who acts in all. 
In liturgical celebrations, each person, minister, or layman who has an office to perform should carry out all and only those parts which pertain to his office by the nature of the rite and the norms of the liturgy. How is the liturgy celebrated? Signs and symbols. A sacramental celebration is woven from signs and symbols. In keeping with the divine pedagogy of salvation, their meaning is rooted in the work of creation and in human culture specified by the events of the Old Covenant and fully revealed in the person and work of Christ. Signs of the Human World In human life, signs and symbols occupy an important place. As a being at once body and spirit, man expresses and perceives spiritual realities through physical signs and symbols. As a social being, man needs signs and symbols to communicate with others through language, gestures, and actions. The same holds for his relationship with God. God speaks to man through the visible creation. The material cosmos is so presented to man's intelligence that he can read there traces of its creator. Light and darkness, wind and fire, water and earth, the tree and its fruit speak of God and symbolize both his greatness and his nearness. Inasmuch as they are creatures, these perceptible realities can become means of expressing the action of God who sanctifies men and the action of men who offer worship to God. The same is true of signs and symbols taken from the social life of man. Washing and anointing, breaking bread and sharing the cup can express the sanctifying presence of God and man's gratitude toward his creator. The great religions of mankind witness, offer impressively, often impressively, to this cosmic and symbolic meaning of religious rites. The liturgy of the church presupposes, integrates, and sanctifies elements from creation and human culture, conferring on them the dignity of signs of grace, of the new creation in Jesus Christ. Signs of the Covenant The chosen people received from God distinctive signs and symbols that marked its liturgical life. These are no longer solely celebrations of cosmic cycles and social gestures, but signs of the covenant, symbols of God's mighty deeds for his people. Among these liturgical signs from the Old Covenant are circumcision, anointing, and consecration of kings and priests, laying on of hands, sacrifices, and above all the Passover. The Church sees in these signs a prefiguring of the sacraments of the New Covenant. Signs Taken Up by Christ In his preaching, the Lord Jesus often makes use of the signs of creation to make known the mysteries of the kingdom of God. He performs healings and illustrates his preaching with physical signs or symbolic gestures. He gives new meaning to the deeds and signs of the Old Covenant, above all to the Exodus and the Passover, for he himself is the meaning of all these signs. Sacramental Signs Since Pentecost, it is through the sacramental signs of his church that the Holy Spirit carries on the work of sanctification. The sacraments of the church do not abolish but purify and integrate all the richness of the signs and symbols of the cosmos and of social life. Further, they fulfill the types and figures of the Old Covenant, signify and make actively present the salvation wrought by Christ, and prefigure and anticipate the glory of heaven. This brings us to the end of our reading selection and the end of our episode for the week. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Catholic Light. Between this week and next week's episode, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast, and please pray for me and my family as I'll be praying for you and your families. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. 
and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.